Hey, welcome back to another episode of Not All at Once. I'm George Guess. And I'm Kendall Y. Kendall, we are back. Another week. We're back. We're we, we're late again. We're late again. That is, I think, both of our faults. But you're in Boston. I've been running around Portugal, ending and pretty much wrapping up my trip. So, but... Let's see. Let's give the timestamp. Today is Sunday, September 18th. It is just about 11.30 a.m. Eastern time. So anything that happens after this, we don't know about yet. So there's been plenty that has happened. So, all right. So last time we talked, we talked about the ETH merge, right? Mm-hmm. Was that the la- that was the last episode? Yes, I think so. Okay. Gosh, it feels like that feels like a little while ago. I know we're. I'm okay. getting like I'm getting whiplash from our our schedule here because it was like <laughs> some some episodes are close together, some are far apart. <laughs> yeah. Well, everything will be back to normal this coming Thursday. Uh, assuming Kendall's schedule is good, mine is mine is going to be normal. So, but yeah, let's uh let's get into it. I mean. We've both been doing our own research just generally as as two curious guys do. So we just were going to kind of go through some of those things. I mean, let, let's just first start off with the ETH merge, give a little update, because the last we talked, uh, it had not happened yet. We were kind of going through what it meant. And so let's talk through what happened, Kindle, with the ETH merge. Well, the ETH merge went smoothly, no, no hiccups, which is, it's, it is impressive. I think I said a few sometime ago, I don't know when I said this, but <laughs> if, if there, if there was going to be an attack on sort of the crypto industry, the ETH merge was sort of the prime, prime weakness point to, 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 to commit an attack. So we made it through, man, it's a, so that's a good thing. There yeah. wasn't any, I mean, no, like no network hiccups, nothing wrong with the network. Everything behaved as expected is, is my understanding. The, the price is kind of sold off, which was kind of yeah. expected. <laughs> really? Uh, okay. I mean, there was obviously debate in the, I mean, it was my right. opinion. This was a, so, you know, it's like, um, buy the rumor, sell the news means, right you know, buy way ahead and then sell right before the actual news event. Um, yeah. That kind of played out. There's, there's been like the way I would, I would describe the trading activity is there's been like probably three months of a bunch of front loading of the ETH merge, a bunch of speculation. And the reason why the price fell off is just because you have a bunch of trades that are unwinding and uh yeah yeah the the eth btc chart is back down um it's sort of it looks like it's broken it it broke through its technical analysis like floor price so i don't know we'll see where price goes from here yeah well i i know one thing that i wanted to break uh bring up is this guy oral or, or I guess it's or Weinberger. Um, so he said he tweeted on 16th September, 
Am I misunderstanding or do ETH stakers need to wait for this Micah fella to implement a withdrawal function that he intends to push back to 2024? And what he's referencing is, I guess, from the core devs chat, a guy named Micah um, pretty much said, uh, I think there are other things far more critical to the long-term health of Ethereum than stakers being able to withdraw in 2023 rather than 2024. So my understanding when I was reading through the CoinMetrics piece and then, yeah, and then also through um, just some other documents that they had even referenced, it sounded to me like they were going to wait about a year maybe, but, and so that puts us in 2023. Um, but to push it back another year, it, to me, this, this just feels really, um, I don't know. It just doesn't feel good. Yeah. I mean, again, the ETH, the asset, so many issues with ETH, the asset, in my opinion, like, um, so the bankless guy was on, on the brink this past week. Yes. I don't know if you, I did, did you listen? I did catch that. Yeah. And he had Very a interesting points. Yeah, no, he's, he's, he's definitely intelligent on the, on the subject matter, but he made some points about like how stakers, there's like this dynamic where the most bull, like sort of staking incentivizes you to be bullish. I don't know. I think what I'm trying to say is that like, this like financial component to staking and like the, the obsession with like the monetary policy and like trying to be deflationary. I think it's like very flimsy and like is not anywhere near sophisticated enough as like the ETH maxis want to admit for like, you're not going to have institutional adoption into this asset in my opinion, because like, it's like, <laughs> there's a lot of LARPing. I don't know how to, I don't know how to say it any other, any other kinder way, but, um, but like this oh, is yes. just an equity in my opinion, you know, it's an equity. And instead of them being in a boardroom, they're in a discord channel or wherever the core devs like talk, you know, that's totally. what it feels there, like. There was, um, who's that guy? There was a, there was an ETH guy who went on the not investment advice podcast a few weeks back. I forget his name. It was the episode like after Michael Saylor. And okay, um, here I can pull it up real quick. He let it slip. I don't know if, if this is public knowledge, but he said it. He let it slip that there's like a private discord between like the ETH elites and he is a part of it. <laughs> and oh my and gosh, I was, when I heard him say that, I was like, you probably shouldn't have said that, dude. <laughs> like, like uh, you just sort of let the cat out of the bag. But, uh, Neither here nor there, that information would come out eventually. Yeah. In terms of like the staking stuff, yeah. They, so there's no withdrawal mechanism. And clearly, there's sort of like two arguments, two opposing arguments here. It's like on one hand, they didn't want to add the withdrawal mechanism because it's additional complexity, could have, you know, increased risk of a bug, could have, would have taken a lot longer. So they were like, well, we'll just do the staking first and then we'll do withdrawing next. But I think that's kind of a weak argument, in my opinion. Like, mm -hmm. obviously, they didn't implement withdrawing because they didn't want people dumping. <laughs> right. Right. Um, I mean, I don't see how there's any other way to view the situation than that. And, and the <laughs> fact that they're like trying to push it out further, it's 
it's sort of an admission of weakness in my opinion so yeah um it's so there's a lot of they're scared yeah it's like are you scared bro like like on one hand yeah. you have the bank the bankless guy saying like oh staking is for bullish people and it makes people way more bullish but then on the other hand they're like well we're, we're gonna push back the withdrawal <laughs> for a long time yeah I mean, so we I just don't... they just have to zoom out just just a little bit to understand that you know we're not in good financial straits overall and so it would make sense that you know if the S&P is having its worst day since June of 2020 or whatever it was um this past week then yeah eth would probably be a multiple of that and then if if people actually had access to to their eth they might say well, yeah, I could get the 5% yield or whatever, but I don't know. I might just want to be safe right now and just pull it out and pull a portion out or pull all of it out into cash. And they can't do that right now. So, yeah, yeah I mean, you know, this... his point is like, oh, these are OGs. They're not going to do that. It's like, okay, well, we, ne- we don't know because they don't have the opportunity to. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's so many, there's so many negative ways to perceive this. <laughs> I mean, uh, <laughs> is there a positive is there a positive in your head can you can you fish one out <laughs> uh, for uh for pushing off i mean in his first in the first message uh that micah posted he said i strongly disagree with this i don't know what that what that's uh referencing but he said every single piece of documentation and publication we put out made it ex- incredibly clear that withdrawals had no eta and this was posted on September 9th, 2022. So, yeah, I mean, even that language is very much like, like a corporate, you know, it's like, it's mm-hmm. like something a, a corporate leader would say, you know? Yeah. Um, and it's very defensive. It is very defensive. I mean, <clears throat> okay. In terms of like the, oh man. Okay. So I think it's very clear to me that the ETH developers have a very, a very clear and like accepted by the masses power over the future of ETH, the asset. At the same time, I do actually think that ETH is going to be marked as a commodity, not a security. Now, I know that uh, this is still, you, you might disagree with me. I think that, um, and it's still up for debate. I mean, we had Gary Gensler last yeah. week speaking to Congress and he used the language of like, he he made it very clear that like, if there are a group of developers that are actively working on this thing, then he is of the opinion that that is under the regulatory uh, purview of the SEC. And like, like I said, I think, I think ETH very, very clearly has like a group of developers that like is like in control so so i do think that uh gensler is very much pushing for ETH to be a security okay but but i still think that there is a good chance that a more likely chance is that it's going to be a commodity and we could talk about like the morality of that but the morality just doesn't really interest me the mm-hmm. like the the practical reason why it'll be a commodity is because the industry needs it to be a commodity. If the if if ETH were dubbed a security, 
then it would i mean it would be a huge blow to the industry i mean it might be like a death blow frankly so you know whenever you have like enough sufficient social coalition like that it's difficult to to break it um maybe they're doing a trade right now they're saying we will comply with energy reduction by going to proof of stake in exchange for being declared a commodity maybe there's uh some back maybe there's a discord a secret discord <laughs> between the regulators <laughs> and, and the core desk <laughs> so well i don't anyways, think energy, that was like the main yeah i don't think the energy okay. has anything to anything to do with it but but uh yeah it'd be interesting i mean you saw the you saw the headline that Klaus Klaus Schwab he's taking his full salary now in ETH, right? What? I'm just kidding. Okay, well, was it was like, a good, it was you're... a really good meme that came out though. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it was like post merge. <laughs> for a second, I I believed you. <laughs> How funny would that be? <laughs> that would be ridiculous. It really it really cracked you up. So that would be ridiculous. All right. Well, we can we can move on. Um, so, yeah, I was just I posted some charts on on my story. Oh, oh, actually, before we go to this, do you want to talk at all about the Patagonia founder Yvonne? I was butcher his last name. Do you want to talk about that at all? How I don't know. A ton of, I don't know a ton about it, but I know there's tax implications. So maybe you you know more than than I do. I mean, we can just. We can just uh, I, I tell, tell the, the story. Tell the story. I, yeah, yeah. So, Patagonia founder, actually, a really solid, cool dude. Um, I don't know him personally, but I watched a documentary on him one time, and he seems awesome. Um, he donated ninety eight percent of his company, Patagonia, to pretty much like a um, a trust that is focused on energy or I'm sorry, environmentalism, more or less. And, but my understanding is it's kind of interesting. He still has control over the company, um, but in some decision-making ways, but like from a tax standpoint, he doesn't own the shares anymore. It's like treated as a donation. And so, yeah, I mean, the headline I saw was that he is going to save close to 700 million dollars in taxes by uh by this donation so but at first ever all, all he was he was just getting the applause of people who you know are really concerned about the environment saying oh my gosh see see this leadership like this is this is like what we need to be doing blah blah, blah. <laughs> and and it was just like oh man like i i i was dming with uh an old friend on instagram because i posted uh something about it on there and i was like pretty much my response was he gets the virtue signal and he gets the tax break so <laughs> he he is very intelligent um yeah but then there was He's... there was an article i think on wall street journal or new york times that was just talking about how this is becoming a a larger um a larger scale scheme that that rich people are taking up and that is to donate pretty much to get this tax benefit, but also have like generational impact on 
some social or political issue, um, which is pretty interesting um, because you kind of are able to accomplish two goals, um, two big goals with one, you know, with one action. So, I mean, Mm. I don't have a ton of thoughts about it. I don't think that it's actually going to do anything to help climate change, but I think for (laughs) Yvonne, it's a great move. Like I, I'm uh, I'm proud of him (laughs) and his accountant, (laughs) whoever his accountant is, that guy or gal. So why did, did did he have like, does he have like a big outstanding tax bill or something? Or is it like he gets to, he has future write-offs up to 700 million? No, what what they were saying is like pretty much comparing if he had just sold his shares, um, what the tax spent or what the tax liability would have been if he had just sold them rather than transfer them to this trust. Mm. Was the What's basic. A, so it was seven hundred million. What was the total value of the company? Well, I think it does like over a billion dollars in revenue. I don't know what the valuation because. Oh yeah, that's they're not even public. They're four private. Or five, four or five billion. Yeah. Yeah. So so anyways, um, just very, just very interesting as you know, people really, really rich people continue to get more and more involved in politics. And you know, on the other side of the aisle, Peter Thiel, he was I was just reading an article this morning about he's pretty much pulling out of he was backing Blake Masters and a few other races. Uh, I think he was backing JD Vance. So, you know, another billionaire pretty much sticking his hand into trying to manipulate politics. Uh just I think we're gonna see more and more of this on both sides of the aisle. So did you say did you say Teal's pulling out of those races, of his support for those races? Yeah, the article the article I read is that the money has dried up for Blake Masters out in Arizona. Um, and not at the best time. So yeah, he's down, he's down about four percentage points in the real clear politics. So, and the article Mm. was essentially just saying like, at first he was, uh, I think he got roughly in total about $12 million from Peter Thiel. Then Trump jumped in. Um, but my understanding is that he is not swimming in cash any longer, but it was just like, to me, it was another example of ultra rich people trying and i i know this has already been happening for decades at this point but um i just think we might see it even ramp up harder yeah with I mean, rich people doing certain things to influence politics and social issues so you know fiat money and the rest of us just being like it, it, pretty much it it actually showing its face as we don't actually live in a democracy, really. We kind of live in this like money talks kind of society. Like, dude, the London, I, when I was in London, you know, they, I was there the day that the new PM was announced. And so I was just chatting about it with like a couple servers and um, our transfer driver. And it was just crazy to hear. Like they were like, they say, you know, it's said that we live in a democracy here in England. We absolutely do not. They like literally a hundred, pretty much like the conservative majority just picked the prime minister um, without any, without any voting or anything like that. So, hmm. but 
they all, you know, every, everyone says, oh, well, the Commonwealth of, of England is a democracy. Um, so all that to say, I don't know where I was going with that. Um, all that to say, tax breaks and um, being able to virtue signal <laughs> and apply that to both sides of the aisle. I think that uh, I'm bullish on that. <laughs> <laughs> bullish on more of that of it happening more often. More of that happening, yes. Okay, I'm there, not saying there, that's a good thing. Sorry. Is there a market? Is there a market we can bet on this? Yeah, you know. Mm. Yeah, think called, so. Isn't that one betting? Called... Isn't that one betting thing uh, gone? I heard that there was one. There was one like platform that you could bet on um, different, just all kinds of things. But one of which yeah. is like who's going to win <clears throat> politics races. But I think they shut that that piece of it down. The politics part of it. Oh, did they? So the platform I think you're referring to is called uh, Kalshi or Kalshi. Okay. K-A-L-S-H-I. Um, okay. And they were actually the first like see this these betting, you know, when you're, when you're betting like on political events that's considered a commodities. That's a commodities contract, interestingly enough. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's under the purview of the CFTC. It's like it's the same way as like a futures market plays out. Okay. Um, but I didn't know that they shut it down. I, maybe it hasn't been shut down yet, but like here's an article from Politico essentially just saying that Washington weighs plan to let Americans wager on elections. So I think that they're looking into it. Um, Dude, somebody somebody in my uh in our company's Slack channel posted a posted an article which is a there's going to be an ETF. Somebody proposed an ETF oh. for uh, the tracks that uh, Congress's trades. Yeah, dude. Nance. There's already one that's that's uh, Nance in a in C. I think it is. That's no specifically way. just for Pelosi's. Yeah. Is it traded? Is it accepted? <laughs> Nanc. I saw it on liquidity. I I don't know if it's actually been um don't they have to get approved and all that kind of stuff yeah yeah i don't think it it, i don't know if it's fully through all that but uh oh my gosh i was cracking up at that i mean that that would outperform that might even outperform sailor you know (laughs) (laughs) oh my gosh oh that just made me think of something but now i've forgotten it oh 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 the um oh i know what it was we do we do need to talk about this actually um hopefully you're cool with this so the white house came out with their with their report on Mm -hmm. i don't know if you saw this i'm sure you saw nick carter's his rebuttal um but let's talk about that let's talk about nick carter's rebuttal i thought it was really good and really well said but do you have any thoughts essentially the government said cryptocurrencies are bad but we see a lot of potential in cbdc's (laughs) Was at least yeah. my general read on it, right? I actually didn't. I didn't read into it to be honest, but okay. Um, but of course, of course, Nick's responses is is good. I mean, what 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 else did you do you expect? Um, it's good to see that Nick's still you know put putting up the good fight for for proof of work. Um, yeah, even though he's been canceled by his fans. <laughs> what is that? I, I don't understand that really. Did, what did he do that made everyone upset? Uh, I think Nick, there's there's sort of been like a uh, fracturing in the Bitcoin community over the past mm-hmm. three months. And the way that I've heard it framed, which I think is most accurate, 
is you have like orthodox Bitcoiners and heterodox Bitcoiners. And um, I think the, the main difference that I see between the orthodox Bitcoiners and the heterodox Bitcoiners is the orthodox Bitcoiners don't think the Bitcoin network needs to be useful like whatsoever. Like, um, like nothing needs to change. There's no problem. That's perfect as the way it is. And like mm-hmm. hetero, heterodox Bitcoiners are like, well, we can improve it through these mechanisms or whatever. You know, like Paul Sork's uh, drive chains. Yeah, side chains or whatever. Yeah. Um, which I have some, I'll, I'll share my opinions on that, on all that stuff in a second. But, but yeah, I think Nick kind of came out and called out a lot of the orthodox Bitcoiners for sort of um, stifling innovation, I guess you could say. And, yeah. and you know, the, the mob did not like that. The mob is just generally, I would say the mob is generally wrong. Well, Maybe here's, 100% a th- here's the thing. The wrong. Yeah, I, um, I originally was like, for most of this year, I was sort of like on on Paul Sork's side, and like, um, I agreed with like the BIP three hundred and like how we should try to make Bitcoin the Bitcoin network more useful. Um, mm-hmm. But to be honest, the more I think about it, the more I sort of fall back into the orthodox world. Like I'm like, you know, actually. I think the Orthodox, here's the problem the Orthodox people are not very pleasant people to, to, you know, they're just sort of like brash and difficult to work with, but that doesn't mean that they're wrong. Um, (laughs) You know, it's like, it's like, you know, meritocracies is like where the strongest idea survives. Right. And it's like, if a person, I understand there's like, you gotta be, you should be polite and thoughtful to people. But in the in the in the space of like battling out ideas, emotions are totally swept aside, in my opinion. And so, like, yeah. if you are if you're emotionally upset because somebody is like being, you know, using a tone that you don't like, or like it's causing some sort of like physical reaction, that's on you, in my opinion. Like, that's not the that's not the problem with the person that's you know proposing the idea. It's like the mm-hmm. way that you're it's the way that you are perceiving the idea. So, I mean, basically my opinion with a lot of this is like people just need to, you know, if you can't take the heat, get out of the kitchen. That's what I say. Yeah. Well, yeah, that, that spans, that spans across all, all different categories of conversation. People just have lost the ability to, uh, agree to disagree or have a polite, uh, discussion of competing ideas. So I totally that's agree. It's kind of sad. It is sad. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I like to think that I can, I can deal with disagreement. And like, frankly, you know, a lot of times I'm like, I'll have like debates or discussions with people and I can tell that both sides are like emotional, including myself. Yeah. But it's like, it I doesn't, I never am like, oh man, <clears throat> these emotions, this is, we have to stop this, this debate. It's like, I don't, you know, I can, I can, I can recognize the emotions and recognize like the unpleasantness associated with that. But at the end mm-hmm. of the day, like I'm having the debate because I want to get to an optimal solution. And so like, I'm yeah, not yeah. going to let emotions get in the way of that. Right. Yeah. 
and I think a lot of it depends on are you having the debate in person or are you having it over over the, the computer waves, you know. Totally. The language yeah. and uh yeah, the respect kind of goes out the window. <laughs> yeah. Text text based meeting mediums kind of don't hold like hold no. no punches, right? You know. Yeah. They um but uh yeah, I've almost gotten to the point now where it's like if I am getting it mostly it happens in like Instagram DMs for me. But if, if I am, if I'm seeing you go down that path, I'll just be like, we have to go get coffee or something. I, I'm done with my fingers, you know, typing. <laughs> I'm tired of this. It's too much, yeah. too, too much to be said. And then, you know, you're responding to something they like their fourth, their fourth oldest message or whatever, you know, because everything, most people, most people, whenever they, each other. Yeah. Most people, whenever like those types of uh, discourses occur, like it's it's caused by people talking past each other, which you know that happens all the time. Me and you do that all the time on this podcast. Okay, so it's just like a natural mm -hmm. thing that happens. Yeah, but it is sort of like I can understand the emotional unpleasantness of of you of like you know person A saying one thing and then person B responding as if person A said something totally different. Right, I understand that yeah. that's like not not a pleasant thing, but. That's just the, I mean, that's just the way discourse works. So I don't know. Um, like I see that. Okay. So to bring this full circle back to, to the crypto stuff, I think that this mm -hmm. is like a, a broader cultural phenomenon happening in the crypto world and web three, which is like on one group, on one side of the, of the fracturing, you have people that are building censorship resistant, privacy preserving, confidential, um, freedom loving libertarian technology you have people that are really really getting down to the root of like an ideological system where it's like we believe that this is the optimal solution for the world over the next thousand years that's like that's like fracture group a group b is yeah. like well we have to we have to like we have like pragmatic use cases that we have to solve for or we have use cases that we have to pragmatically solve for in like the practical world like here and now today and like we have to like, in you know, group group A is like ideological, and group B is very entrepreneurial. Um, and it's like, you know, if you if you're in group B where you're trying to solve real real problems today, you have to sort of bend the knee to to you or let me put it as well, you have to throw ideology out the window. You just like have to solve like there's an existing problem in the world. It doesn't matter. What this if the solution is ideological ideologically inconsistent with what you or with what the mob believes in like there's a there's an objective solution and you're gonna create it um yeah and like and like it makes sense you know Nick Carter is a venture capitalist and so he is supporting entrepreneurs so yeah you know yeah everybody, everybody at the end of the day is talking their own book including me and you and uh so so yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a give and take to both, right? But, but, but yeah, yeah. I would say to me, it it feels a little bit right now like like graders just became a a business, okay? And they came up with vanilla ice cream. They took vanilla extract, then they made vanilla ice cream. Maybe that's like Bitcoin. Then someone came along and was like, "Well, how about chocolate ice cream?" Well, we tried that and some people were like, no, nah, I'm going to stick with vanilla. And other people are like, no, I really like chocolate. This, uh, this is great. And then fast forward and how many flavors are 
at graders that are always on the menu, right? And then there's some that are like one time. To me, it feels like same as like religion. There's always going to be this fracturing, right? Where people, groups of people get together and say, we agree with some parts, but not all the parts. And so we're going to create our own, um, pretty much our own group, right? Or our own flavor. And I feel like we're just in the very beginning of that. But to our conversation, like before we aired, it's like, we're not talking about ice cream. We're talking, we're talking about commerce. We're talking about like global settlement networks. <laughs> you know, it's like, uh, it's a really big, it's a really big deal. And there's a lot, a lot at stake as to like what is comprised of the different flavors. So, yeah, yeah I mean, I'm not, well, not surprised so, that it's getting heated. Oh, of course. Yeah. This is the, it's the, you know, the, the, the battle of information, uh, two, two comments, the, the, uh, the reason why I'm so bearish on ETH, the asset, is because I think that basically ETH tries to do both, and it's going to end up doing neither. Um, mm. But uh, neither here nor there. Just a side, you know, slight to ETH because I always love to knife the ETH guys. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, uh, see, there's you're there's gonna have your to hire. You're gonna have to start hiring a, a bodyguard or something. There's your tribalism. But that yeah. was obviously that's obviously like a joke. Like I kind of say those things in jest. Um, oh, the yeah. the other th- but the other comment that I want to make is I was actually thinking about this last week. What's the um? Do you know if you if you account for all of the religions in the world that like you know uh, worship like a single god? You know, like there's like Islam, Judaism, uh, Christianity. Those are all kind of like the same God. Like there's like a single God, right? There's just one. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. Mono, monolithic. Monotheism. Yeah, monotheism. Mono, yeah, monotheism. And then there's like other religions. If you think of like the old Nordic religions or the old ancient Greece religion where there's many gods, right? I think yeah. that there is, um, my understanding is that like most of the world, most of the religious world, an overwhelming majority is monotheistic. Like they only worship a single God. And yeah. uh, so like, this is why I think Bitcoin, like I think that there is a network effect of having like a one true thing, right? Like, uh, and I, th- I think that um, I understand this argument of like, well, you know, like the ice cream argument of like, there's going to be new people want new flavors and blah, blah, blah. But ultimately it's like a network it's like winner take all network effect i think that um Mm -hmm. one the one true god is the is the there's like probably something psychological that goes on in the human yeah physical structure that like makes that happen right it's like i don't know what it is but there's probably some like uh reason for for that for that cultural phenomenon and so like i think that that's like further support of bitcoin in my opinion as being like the winner take all of this sort of, of this sort of like ideological battle. Um, but then, yeah, but yeah. I mean, they, Bitcoin has such a, to me, just such a simple uh, problem solution narrative. And that is we're separating government and money, you know, and literally it can be some, to me, for one camp of Bitcoiners that can be summed down to that sentence. And for every other cryptocurrency, I have to 
pretty much have a pa- at least a paragraph, if not, you know, dude, pages, I totally pages, on pages totally to understand what this. they're solving. Yeah. Yes. The marketing, the marketing is, is optimal for, for like the, like the simple, you got to be able to make it simple. Right. I totally, that's a, that's yeah. a really good insight. Yeah. So after the merge, Hasu, who is like a, uh, an analyst in the crypto space. I have he's opinion the on Mo- the Morty with the uh, he's the Morty with the eye patch, right? With the eye patch, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know if I've, I'll, I'll hold my my tongue on some things about Hasu, but he tweeted out after the merge and he said, "The merge has only convinced me further that the intellectual state of the BTC community is truly in shambles. The high quality people who remain, example, Bitmex research, are mostly covering Ethereum now." I still love Bitcoin very much and hope for a restorative movement. Okay. So I, I'll I'll add some commentary on that in a second. But Arthur Hayes quote tweeted it and he quote tweeted, uh, be, not, be not dismayed. Lord Satoshi is the one true God. Bitcoin doesn't need to do anything, just exist. That is all. And in time, all sinners will repent. I mean, <laughs> that is so spot on okay like (laughs) i'm not trying to be i am like by no means uh like i'm not a religious person whatsoever but just objectively that like me that's like a meme right there okay that the the power the power of that meme i think is um is extremely i think people i think there's like a i think that culturally in the world right now there's like a growing movement of nihilism and um I'm going to call out one person specifically on crypto Twitter. And that is Udi. Are you familiar with Udi? Yeah. 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 So Udi is like sort of the the prime suspect of this, in my opinion. And I think Paul Sork actually is kind of like this too. They're kind of okay. like, ni- they're kind of like nihilistic and they, they sort of like belittle. They like, they look at like that meme that I just described from Arthur Hayes. And they're like, Oh, that's a bad thing. Like you shouldn't, you know, like that's not the way the world works. And I'm mm-hmm. like, I think that that's a total mistake. Like, I think that's a losing battle. I think that that sort of nihilism is how you end up in a world that is a race to the bottom, which is like what Ethereum is going to be, what it going to be in. Like, if you, if you, if you lean too heavily on utility and not on this like ideology, then yeah. people just like stop caring about you. Right. There's like, they're just like, okay, can I use, are, are you useful or are you not useful? That's all I care about. Yeah. People care about a story. I mean, at the end of the day, that's what everyone who does something meaningful at scale, they do it by creating a storyline. And so to me, although obviously Bitcoin is not traded uh, in in the way that the story was supposed to play out in this very short term view that everyone was like, oh, it's an inflation hedge. Um, (laughs) You know, it was supposed to be in terms of decades not we're not talking about like six months or years or whatever um but the whole the whole story right now there's there is a problem that is touching the lives of a lot of people um like probably getting close to the majority of people in the world and we'll we'll go over that here very soon and that's just like economic hardship and not being able to pay your bills, not being able to have the same life you had, maybe the life you had, maybe pre 2019 or, or pre 2020, but maybe never, maybe it's just gotten worse. 
But I don't know. I've been listening to all these macro voices interviews, whether it's about the dollar or it's about um, energy or fertilizer, crop yields, all those kinds of things. And it's like, man, life potentially, um, if all the signs are correct, life is about to not be uh, as good as it was in the prior decades. And if that turns out to be true, people are going to look for a solution. And um, and we'll just see where, where people land. Like, where do the majority of people actually land in that solution? Um, so are you saying like with think, respect to with respect to Bitcoin, like how Bitcoin fits into that? I mean, I would just say, yeah, I would say currencies generally, right? Like if your currency is collapsing, um, yes, you have to try to find some safe place to go. So in that sense, maybe Bitcoin is, is a good option. Um, and then, you know, and in regimes that are don't respect property rights obviously that's another use case um but really other uh, in other ways it's just like as a hedge against like things getting really bad and just having it you know having a portion of your portfolio allocated to it that's like more western themed but i guess they're just going to have there's going to be a lot of people that have a problem they're not all going to have the same problem but they're going to be looking for a solution. And I think Bitcoin provides yeah, the, the narrative. Yeah. The narrative of a solution to a to a bevy of problems that people are already facing and like new problems that will even arise. Um and I hope that, you know, I hope that none of that stuff happens. I hope that we can just return to like 2019 style. <laughs> um global economy um but well okay it so it seems like that might be difficult <laughs> yeah i want to get to that in a second but first i want to talk about bitcoin the uh mm -hmm. i want to address the uh inflation narrative head on you know it's like people i see this all over crypto twitter too they're like you know like bitcoin is supposed to be this inflation hedge the narrative is totally in shambles it's falling apart what is bitcoin anyway it's just another risk asset I think that's all bullshit. Let me tell you why. Bitcoin yeah. is not a is not a hedge against consumer price inflation. And it never yeah. was, and it, and it never will be. That's not what it is. It's an inflation against monetary inflation. Yeah. So the number of bank deposits in existence, and 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 it's behaving as exactly as expected if you look at the monetary base. But um, so first off, I just want to address that because people are just frankly wrong. I think more more pr pragmatically, practically, what you the the way to frame Bitcoin in this sort of like in this world that's um very volatile and uncertain is twofold. First off, Bitcoin is certain, and so just having like a simple narrative that's easily understandable is very powerful. But um, on a more on a again on a different hand. Um, I think of Bitcoin as government spending is inherently inefficient and it always will be. And there is no system of governance where government spending is optimal. It's always going to be inefficient. And it goes back to, it's, it's like an incentive problem. You have a misalignment of incentive of you're spending other people's money on other, on other people. Mm -hmm. You have, you have no personal incentive to, to make sure that it is 
most effectively use. So that'll always be the case. You can think of governments as like giant dams or like they're holding a bunch of water and they're always going to leak. Like there is always going to be leakage in that system. All that value, Mm -hmm. all that value accretes to Bitcoin. And sometimes that happens like all at once. And sometimes that happens sort of gradually. Um, Usually it's like stair-stepped. It's like, yeah, like there will be, what's the quote? There's like, there are years where nothing happened or there's decades where nothing happens. And then weeks when decades happen, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. So don't miss, don't miss the ship. Um, so, but yeah, yeah, that's, that's my Bitcoin commentary. I mean, I, th- especially these fucking ETH guys, I, I don't understand why the ETH people, <laughs> I, I guess I actually, I, I like the, the, uh, the adversarial takes because then I can prove them wrong and I can be like, let me, <laughs> let me, let me explain. We have to something you to talk about. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, otherwise but, we would just be like pastors up here every week pretty much giving a sermon (laughs) on different parts about Bitcoin. So it's good to have the, uh, yeah, there's plenty of people out there that already do that. Uh (laughs) Yeah. Well, here's something interesting, uh, in the, in Bitcoin. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. Well, I, I, we can, I can, I can comment on the, um, some of the economic things too, but if you have more Bitcoin stuff, let's, what do you got? What do you got? Well, this is just kind of random, but this literally popped up while we were talking on Twitter. So, and it's, it, so one BTC started trending on Twitter and um, the top tweet just says number of Bitcoin addresses holding more than one Bitcoin hits new all time high above 900,000 for the first time. So it's pretty cool. Yeah. It's a, what they call it a crab market. So, you know, guys like guys like you and me, this is our time to shine. Mm, maybe one day we will be whole coiners. Hmm. Cannot uh, I? I lost all my bitcoins, so I don't know. I don't have, I have zero in Miami. I have zero. Yeah, I have none myself. But okay, I want to address one more, another thing too, because this this original Hasu tweet where he's saying that like the intellectual state of the Bitcoin community is in shambles. I th- again, I think this is total. I think this is total bullshit. It Bitcoin, Bitcoin, in my opinion, attracts the best of the best. Okay, the most intellectual people will will go to bitcoin here's the reality of the situation there's there's not a ton of improvement that needs to be made to bitcoin now am i saying there's none no there's probably some we can there's things to do but there's like the way i view it is like when you are so good at what you do you don't have to work very frequently and so you're not on you're not on crypto twitter constantly going like i a lot of the shit that i see on like in a lot of crypto is like people that are just like mindlessly discussing complexity i'm like (laughs) dude i don't understand like why what's like the end value here like it's like they get so caught up in the abstract world that they forget that there's like real world you know value like things to be done yeah. But, uh, and that just like, that just doesn't happen in Bitcoin because I, cause I think the people are smart, um, and they don't spend their time on Twitter and there is still, <laughs> but there is still a lot of innovation happening in Bitcoin world. It just, for whatever reason, doesn't seem to get the play like Fediment, you would have thought like, if that was an Ethereum type of thing, 
it would have gotten, I feel like so much more visibility when it was like announced. And even now, like, I just feel like more and more people, I don't know if it's like Ethereum totally. people are more energized or they're no, like, more, I'll tell you what it is. I don't know what the word is. Yeah. So what it is. And I think there's a, I think there's actually a reason for this, which is can be rationalized. It's, it's about speculation. The, the value of ETH and Sol and AVAX, these like layer one block blockchain assets that are functionally bandwidth assets, what they do is they create a system of speculation which attracts eyeballs. Now, in my opinion, it doesn't attract the, the, the best eyeballs. The best eyeballs go to the shit where it's not speculative. But you get you get a lot you get a lot of eyeballs on on the uh, just because there's so much if it it's like if it bleeds it leads type of a uh, phenomenon yeah. like if uh, if there's volatility then like people are gonna chatter about it the mob is gonna go crazy about it and and I think here's the thing take that for however you will like obviously my tone of voice probably like, I probably lean towards like that's garbage but. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I think that there is actually value to that too, which is like, I think that these these open standards, these like protocols, be, it helps entrench them into the industry. It's sort of like, I think that finance is so heavily political, just like, yeah. that's like, that's like a natural phenomenon that the only way to induce a change is to like have this sort of like balls to the wall like crazy speculative mania of like incentives like i think that's kind of like the maybe the only way that you sort of change the finance system you know what i mean yeah um yeah yeah i mean it's well i just lost my thought but well at least that's like one argument i mean that's definitely like i think um you know, like the A16Z guys, have, I think have put this way more articulated than I can. But they're like, uh, I think one of the ways they describe it is like, when you have a startup, um, early investor, uh, how do they frame it? There's a there's a challenge, there's like a principal agent dilemma between like being an early investor and holding it, holding your equity through to like when you are a unicorn. But then like, with crypto, you sort of front load that incentive. And so you get more, more people building or something. I forget exactly. Mm-hmm. What frame it. But there's like a, there's an actual reason to do it, you know? Yeah. I mean, I just love your comparison though, about how Bitcoin is just, it's in its own camp. I mean, to me, it just seems so similar to the concept of time and the fact that literally no, no one controls time. It's universal though. Like everyone understands, you know what I'm saying? Like I'm over here in Europe and like one minute is still one minute, even though like a lot of other things are measured differently, whether it's currency or space. Um, But time is like the one thing that is that everyone can agree. Yes. 10 minutes just went by because we all know what a minute is. We all know what a second is, what an hour is. And it's so simple, so universal. And I feel like that is like the closest thing we have to that asset, which time is an asset. The most valuable asset is Bitcoin. Um, so yeah. And like, it seems like it's in a camp all of it itself. 
I totally agree. I, I always make it clear that I think that there's sort of two buckets here. There's like Bitcoin and then there's like finance, uh, digital finance. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, another thing too about what's interesting about Bitcoin is that it's purely synthetic. I understand that there's proof of work has integrations into the energy grids, but the mm-hmm. con but the concept is synthetic. It's like um, it's like <clears throat> you know you describe it like time, but really Bitcoin is like a it's a human it's like a manifestation of the human mind versus like something that exists in nature. But here's the thing, so that's like the, sort of like the cynical, the cynical slash bordering nihilistic view of bitcoin the bitcoin ideology i think there's like a more hopeful um yeah a more hopeful view which is that like look you can call bitcoin it could have been called whatever it, it could have been called anything okay it just so happens to be called bitcoin but eventually humans were going to come up with some synthetic commodity that that has these properties of like nobody controls it and like it's almost like it's it's almost like a deep manifestation of the human psyche, right? It's like mm-hmm. it's not it's not even something that like we are consciously intentionally creating where it's like, oh, we have this, here's the contract, here's the asset, you know, there's this many units. <laughs> it's al- it's almost yeah. like it's like a deeply uh psychological phenomenon that exists in social systems. And it just so happens that we get to live through it, right? Yeah, it's pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, through all of the people are always going to bicker and argue um, about things. I just think people are bored. So, I mean, I think people are going to do that. (laughs) But I think just taking a step back and just understanding that, yeah, it actually is a pretty cool thing that um, if you're listening to this, you were born in an age where you get to kind of see this stuff play out um, because no matter what happens, something's going to happen. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, we're not going back to where we came from. We have to go somewhere new. And that in and of itself is, is pretty exciting. Um, but the technology that's already been created and has shown promise over the last um, decade or so, it's just pretty cool. So, yeah. I agree, best man. Best of luck to everything else. <laughs> I agree, man. The uh, the crypto space, Web three, decentralized finance, whatever you want to call it, Bitcoin, sort of lump it all together. Crypto, non non blockchain mm-hmm. crypto. I do think that's the frontier right now. I mean, that's where yeah, that's where that's where all the hope exists, right? I was going to pull up. Didn't you? What was your? You tweeted something this morning. That was that was a little. Oh, maybe that does that have to do with your thesis that you're not ready to share quite yet? We can talk about the tweet a little bit because I've talked about this okay. before. The tweet yeah. is, what if I told you web the Web3 movement isn't about censorship resistant whatsoever, but about protocol entrenchment and the resulting programmability? So mm-hmm. this is this is like bring bring us back to the beginning of our conversation where there's like a fracturing in the space where like group A is like libertarian dream technology in group b is like practical entrepreneurial applications and uh this is where i think the ethereum people 
get it totally wrong. Like they need to, everything that's basically not Bitcoin, in my opinion, needs to abandon this concept of like censorship resistance or apolitical or blah, blah, blah. These, these tools exist for civilization. They exist for regula regulatory contracts to oversee. And, uh, and so, yeah, like, I think that Bitcoin exists for censorship resistance, but I think that Web3 is more about like entrenching open standards and then letting developers program solutions that are interoperable. Um, it's like the, it's just like the same way we had the open web of communication back in the nineties mm -hmm. and the, the aughts, which led to things like Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, you had the open, that's the open like messaging system. This is like about open financial systems. And that doesn't mean that you can't have regulatory oversight. In fact, you have to have it like trust is a requirement to have these things. So but to, to the surprise of many, yeah, they need to, they ought to, they ought to just cool off on the censorship resistance stuff, in my opinion. Do you, do you see any possibility, though, where it mirrors something like RSS? Like this new crypt, like if there's anything close to that in the crypto space, where really there is nobody who governs over RSS feeds, at least my understanding. But no, I don't, but I don't see that. Yeah. Well, okay. here's a, here's here's the thing. Like, there is there's two things here. There is the technical standards, the protocols, which I think probably will trend towards what you're describing, which is like RSS type of thing. That's like the tech. That's bucket A, technical standards and implementation details. But bucket B is like, what are the actual instantiations of these? of these financial contracts, assets, securities, the instantiations, the actual, the actual thing that is accepted by the world to have value, um, almost always requires a trusted third party. Bitcoin is not that way because Bitcoin is a digital gold. We've talked about this endlessly, but, but even, much... but even with Bitcoin, there is for the vast majority of people, they are trusting a third party with Bitcoin, even then. Or even with that asset, you know? Yeah, whether but it's, it's like how they're holding it or buying it. But I get, yeah, get your point. There are counterparts, but it's mostly the idea is trust minimization, right? So right. it's like, yeah, yeah. Sort of on an absolute or like on a relative scale, you can say there's no trust. Yeah. With like with financial assets, um, you there's always a requirement for a trusted third party. This is where the crypto people haven't figured this out yet. There's always going to be a requirement for a trusted third party. But that doesn't mean that you won't have blockchains, you won't have layer one assets, you won't have all the stuff that exists today. I think you have all the stuff that exists today. And the real value of that thing is not the assets, but, um, or sorry, it's not that they're like apolitical and censorship resistance. The primary value is that they are openly programmable. They are permissionless for, for developers to come in and build solutions. And mm. those solutions, in order to be instantiated, will probably require a trusted third party, like the government or some, some compliance agency. 
and and that's required okay that's like you in order to instantiate the financial asset you have to have that but you couldn't have had the financial asset in the first place if you didn't have like the protocol entrenchment be like you yeah. couldn't you couldn't have programmed it without the network existing so okay well, i like that i like that little teaser well i'm sure there's a lot more to uh to get into with that with that tweet so we will save that for another day well, what yep. have we gone so far what 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 is our time i can't ever see what our time is i always yeah, know what time we zoom doesn't show it uh but i think we're a little over an hour if you want to guess hour hour 10 hour 15. okay oh yeah because we talked over we talked for a little bit before well the only other thing that i had and we can probably just save it for another episode um but what I will leave you with is everyone go try to have more children. <laughs> mm, so, demographics. Demographics. Yeah. Well, you're you're pulling your uh, weight. I'm not pulling my weight though. Well, I could have done better though. I uh could have had twins or triplets. We're just doing one at a time, I guess. So mm. but uh on a serious note, it actually seems like quite quite the issue. Oh. Um so I know Elon, you know, I know he's he's uh he's a controversial subject generally, but he you know, his his take is that's like the biggest issue we face as a global society. Um so yeah, I mean I was where all this is coming from is from uh Peter Zihan's book, right? Mm -hmm. Am I saying his last name right? Yeah. Yeah. Um The End The End of the World is just the beginning, I think it's called. Listening to it on audiobook, which apparently is the better way to do this book specifically. Um, I was listening to Jerry Brito, and he does a book review with another guy once a month, and they did the review, and they were just like annoyed at reading it, but they were like maybe on audiobook. So I tried it on audiobook, and it has been good. But it is uh, it's very dense and kind of all over the place. Like his style's a little like fun. I think it's fun, but his main contention is that uh or one of his contentions is that population decline is going to become this spiral effect that um essentially destroys or it potentially destroys different societies um and then unravels the global economy as we don't have enough bodies uh to replace to replace all the services and goods and services being produced obviously like disclaimer that is assuming we don't figure out some kind of like cloning technology. So, but well, that would be a whole, that would be a whole uh, <laughs> moral, moral <laughs> dilemma in and of itself. I think that, uh, I think I'm not an expert here, but, but I think that the, the problem that I see um, is less so on like the industrial front in terms of like labor. Cause I, I just, you know, Peter Zihan knows these things. I, I don't know. Um, and more on the financial front, I can tell you that like our financial system is basically set up to assume to be a Ponzi scheme, right? Social security is mm -hmm. like by def by definition a Ponzi scheme. So, so yeah, if you have a if you have a declining population demographic, then your financial system must change entirely, and uh, that process of change can be very volatile and difficult. Yeah, it, 
especially as like it's just this it's coming at it from both sides of like we're not having nearly enough children like not even close on one end and then people are living much longer on the other end but like they're not necessarily living like the best life in those last like 10 15 20 years you know it's kind of just like they're limping along but obviously like we're glad that they're still alive but it's it, it's a very touchy thing right um because they do have a cost um and the people who normally would bear that cost are, are nowhere to be found because they weren't created <laughs> so um and i think that we're we're like kind of in the middle of it i feel like we're it's like uh um you know it's like the frog getting boiled kind of thing you just don't know that it's getting hotter until it's it's boiling and you're like oh gosh so i don't know what the solution like literally like these things have crossed my mind since reading this book or uh, listening to the book on the train ride uh yesterday one of which would be is there is there someone or is this already a thing like a large-scale movement to try to encourage procreation of pretty much people in their 20s and 30s <laughs> and even maybe in, even into their 40s um, and maybe just do it on a U.S. level and call it a national security issue. <laughs> I don't know if that's already out there, but uh, that crossed my mind is like, is there a way to like an initiative almost of um have more children but well, obviously you time. want those children to come into the world in the correct circumstances as well so it's very complicated <laughs> yeah i mean you can't you can't control that but um there's a lot to, there's a lot to unpack there i mean it, the uh one thing is that you're assuming that leadership is of the opinion that more more population equals good leadership may not be of that opinion right so <laughs> uh that's just one, one comment i don't yes. know I, i'm just saying that that's you know those are the two sides of the arguments um right and uh you know the way you would solve it is through like a you know like a tax incentive basically you would basically yeah. pay, pay people to have children really boosting the child tax credit yeah and child and um and actually it, it's been funny on this europe trip we've only, it's only come up a few times but it has come up the uh paid leave conversation mm. and mm -hmm. um people are just absolutely floored over here in europe uh, as to like how little time we get paid leave um and it's not even guaranteed right it's just from it's from your employer so i mean i've yeah. heard one i can't remember which country it was but there was someone who was like literally we almost get a year it's almost a year of paid leave from the government think, which you yeah, know think, obviously that's germany. maybe a little overboard <laughs> yeah <I don't> know, <laughs> yeah maybe that's i don't know that feel that to me as an american that feels absolutely overboard <laughs> but i don't know I don't know. We're over here like we think four weeks is really good. So I don't know. It, so anyways, that obviously that would have to change. But you have to also kind of fix the money, right? Like a lot of a lot of young people are like, I can't afford things. And so I'm not going to have kids. I mean, even for us, that's a that is a real thing. We pushed off having kids because for partially we were like, well, we'll have fun for a little bit, travel, those kinds of things. 
Um, but the other side of it is like, well, for some of these bigger purchases, it is going to take us some time um, to save up the money and all that kind of stuff to get the, these things done and to get ourselves in a good position. So whereas for our parents, I feel like it was a lot quicker. I think, I don't know. So yeah, I think there's like a, yeah, there's a lot to it. Right. I mean, I think another thing too yeah. that's, that's discussed somewhat is the fact that most families can't be supported on a single income. Yeah. Right? That's like a big thing. You know, it used to be like in the, in the fifties or sixties, it was like, you know, like the, the male, the, the patriarch of the family would have a job and that was sufficient to, to raise everybody. They didn't need, didn't need more money. Now it's like a single income is, you know, on, on average, not sufficient to, to raise a family. Again, yeah, this goes back to the much tougher. This goes back to the finance. Yeah. The, the finance problem is, it's a real problem. Yeah, it is. Cause it has so many ripples. I mean, one of his main points was that you essentially used to have your, your, your children actually used to be productive assets back when we were more of a farming community, right? And like we were more in rural areas, you needed to have children to actually be laborers. Like that was one motivation, obviously not the only. And yeah, as we have urbanized and as pretty much things have gotten more expensive, it's now his, his comment was essentially like, if you can at the very least like, get to like net zero cost for your kids like that's perfect like maybe your tax credit covers which obviously it doesn't like your kid is in the you're in the red with your kid with each kid and so mm -hmm. you don't have that incentive anymore from a financial standpoint um you know the two thousand dollars a year that they give out for child tax credits doesn't even come close so yeah it, it was that was an interesting point but really the implications of the fact that kid, uh, kids are not being produced. The, that's the most interesting part to me. Um, and then like, how does that all play out from like a uh, geopolitics standpoint? Uh, it, yeah. It, it, there's a lot of, there's a lot of ripples. So we can save it for another episode. Um, we could probably do a whole episode just off that book after we've both gotten through it all the way. Have you, have you gone through it all the way yet or, no, or not I, yet? I bought it. Okay. I bought it. I haven't even started it though. Okay. Well, we can save that for another for another episode. So I don't want to take your whole Sunday up. Okay, let's call it. That was a great episode. All righty. <laughs> Thanks for listening, y'all. We will be back on Thursday. So it'll be a quick turnaround. Yep. See you soon. All right. Thanks.